0: Good morning, my name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to bring the word of Christ. It's a joy to worship underneath that word along with you today. Stay here in Mark chapter 10. That's where we will be throughout this message. For some reason, when I buy, maybe when you buy those box furniture kits from Ikea or some other store, it comes in the mail and you open the thing up and it sprawls out and there's 300 pieces in there and it boggles your mind how so many pieces could fit inside this teeny little box but they are there, and they are there to be put together in a specific order, in a specific fashion. And There's something about my nature. It's probably pride. I don't know what it is, but I just want to... The instinct is, I don't need those instructions. I can put this thing together. How hard can it be? It's a bookshelf. But at some point, without fail, section A does not fit with section C. There's a screw hole here, and there's no screw to go in that screw hole. So what is going to happen And the frustration mounts? If I would have just followed those instructions, would have saved myself a lot of pain, and I would have maximized my joy in that process. And the exact same thing could be said when it comes to marriage. God has instructions about marriage. And if we would listen to his instructions, if we would obey his design, then we would spare ourselves so much pain. And we would maximize our joy and his glory. In our text today, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees on the subject of marriage and he's teaching his disciples on marriage and he's shaping their understanding. They need his voice to speak into their context to help shape it because they've gotten off track. And we too this morning, certainly in our culture, we need Jesus to help shape our understanding of marriage. Marriage is under fire in our day and time in America. It almost goes without saying. But all of us, and even healthy marriages, need to be reoriented, constantly reoriented because sin exists and Satan exists and he would love to destroy our marriages. So we must be on guard and we must be prepared and we must have our minds rightfully situated on God's design. What does God desire for our marriages? And while His design might seem difficult or backwards or primitive, His design is His design. And it is for our good. As the creator of marriage, He gives the instructions to us. For our good and for our joy. And at the outset here, I know this subject may bring up a lot of pain, a lot of disappointment, heartache. It's going to be a very difficult subject, but just want to say at the outset, based on the Bible, that no matter where you find yourself this morning on this subject, God is a God of forgiveness, of grace, of redemption, of restoration, and of hope. As we study this teaching and it may challenge us and convict us and pull us all different directions, let's not lose sight of our great and awesome God. Let's pray for his help as we dive in. Father of glory, God of creation, who in your exceeding wisdom created and designed marriage, would you be with us this morning by your Holy Spirit through your word? Changing us and shaping us and transforming us and causing our affections, most importantly, to be drawn to Christ. That your son, Jesus, would be glorified and magnified in our hearts this morning as we submit to his teaching. Would we marvel at your love and grace for us? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So the first point this morning is God's good design for marriage. Verse 1, and he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So Jesus teaching the crowds, and in the Pharisees. We've seen this before. They do not come out here with their legal pads because they're so curious and just so want to understand what Jesus has to tell them. That's not why they're here. The Word says they came to test Him, or better yet, to trap Him. The Pharisees do not like Jesus. They want Him gone. So they see a possible opportunity, and they want to seize upon it. What is the nature of that trap? We're not exactly sure, but it might have to do with something about Herod. As we remember for a few weeks ago, John the Baptist, what happened to him? He stood up for biblical marriage and he got his head cut off. right? So maybe that's going on here. Hey, if we can just get Jesus to argue for biblical marriage like John did, we can get him in trouble with Herod. Maybe we can get Jesus killed. Or perhaps it's to draw Jesus, embroil him in a current controversy that was going on between the conservative and the liberal pharisees. So they were in a big argument and discussion based around Deuteronomy 24 which says in the first part of that chapter that there is a de- there's an indecency that Moses was allowing people to have if they noticed this indec- indecency in their spouse they could write the woman a certificate of divorce and send her away. as that passage goes on, that woman's not allowed to get married and then come back to the original husband. But they argued about what does indecency mean? What is this indecency that they are finding in the spouse? And so the conservatives would say, hey, that indecency is adultery. and adultery alone, the liberals would say, hey, it has to do with anything. We can sort of broaden that category, even as it's been said, spoiling somebody's meal. You mess up a dish, you can be divorced. And that's where the liberals were going with it. So, to, so th- that was what, that's kind of the nature of this, and maybe it's a combination of both of these things. But the Pharisees are after Jesus. They want to trap Jesus. They want to get him removed. And so this is the trap. And how does Jesus then respond? We see that verse 3. He answered them, Well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. That's what I was just referencing. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart... He wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then later in a little discussion with the disciples, They asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the Pharisees are wanting to talk about divorce. Reasons for divorce. Jesus shifts that. Jesus says, hey, I'm not here to talk about divorce. I want to talk about marriage. It's a subtle but powerful shift that Jesus is is making, because he knows their hearts. They're looking for reasons to get out of marriage, and Jesus says, you're missing the whole point. You're missing the whole point. It's like Tony Morita says that they wanted to talk about how to crash land a plane. Jesus wanted to talk about how to fly a plane. They're fixated on crashing. Jesus says, let's talk about flying the joy and the glory and the design of a plane to fly. And to do so, he takes them back to Genesis chapter 1, all the way back to the very beginning in creation. What was the way that God originally set this thing up? He's moving from legal technicalities to the moral implications of creation. And in the very beginning, we see this, a few things to point out about Marriage. Number one, marriage is between a male and a female. Verse six, God made them male and female. In God's supreme wisdom and love and goodness, He creates humanity in two genders. He creates them male and female. That's His sovereign, wise, good design. It's a binary. Bifurcation, right? It's not a spectrum. It's biological in nature. The gender is tied to biology, either male or female. And God says this is very good. This is very, very good for you. Secondly, we see that marriage is a one flesh union. Verse 7 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So the male and the female, they are very different. Understated, understatement, right? Very different. Those of us that are married or in close connection with the other sex know that we are very different. But inside the marriage union, Jesus or God does something extremely unique and mysterious. He combines the two. He joins the two so that two distinct people, very different, come together in one unit, joined by God. A one flesh union. The flesh that was taken out of Adam is put back in Adam, and the two become one. They became a single unit in such a way that one belongs to the other, and the other belongs to the other. They belong to each other, and they exclusively belong to each other, to no one else. It's a unique, exclusive relationship on the planet. Third, we see marriage is a lifelong covenant. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, you see God's active nature here, what he's joined together, let not man separate. God does the joining. Because God does the joining, let man not separate. I'm just reciting the obvious implication of the text. That's what the text says. God joins Who is man to decide to separate that bond? So to summarize, God's good design for marriage is a male and a female united together in an exclusive and lifelong marriage relationship. That's God's design. if we would submit to that, we would flourish as individuals and as couples and as a society. That is God's good and gracious, wise design for us. But, then you might ask, well, is Jesus or is God in Genesis then against Moses? Is Jesus against Moses? Is is He affirming Moses or is He not affirming Moses? Are they at odds with one another? And to, To see that, we have to go back to Mark 10, verse 5. And this is the second main point of this message. We see God's compassionate concession for divorce. Verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to write a certificate of divorce. So if hard hearts were not there in Genesis 1 that Jesus has already drawn our attention to, where do they come from? Well, they come from Genesis chapter 3. They're not there in creation, but they're there in, fall, in the fall. The fall of man, when Adam and Eve decided, hey God, I know you created us, I know you love us, I know your presence is the most valuable thing in the universe, we're deciding to go against your rule, against your lordship, stop worshiping you, and we're going to go our own way. We know you've given us the instruction manual, but we feel like we can do things better. So off they go. At that point, sin, a sin. Right? Sin comes into the, to the human equation, our human nature then is, is cursed we all take on the sin nature. That's where hard hearts come from. And uh, I love how theologian Wayne Grudem comments on this. He says, Jesus' statement, because of your hardness of heart, should not be understood to mean that only hard-hearted people initiate divorces. But rather, because your hard-hearted rebellion against God led to serious defilement of marriages, Let me say that again. Because of your hardness of heart should not be understood to mean that only hard-hearted people initiate divorce, but rather because your hard-hearted rebellion against God led to serious defilement of marriages. The presence of sin in the community meant that some marriages would be deeply harmed by hard-hearted spouses. And therefore, Moses allowed the other spouse to obtain a divorce. God was providing a partial remedy for the harm that a hard hearted husband or wife could do to the other person in the marriage. So, sin, the fall of man, has radical, painful, defiling effects on marriage. That's why Moses was allowing this divorce to happen, these certificates. These certificates were, were critical, and you got to understand God's heart behind these certificates, because for the woman in that culture, that woman, if she was sent away with a certificate, that was her livelihood, that a, a, a woman that's been divorced could be killed. If you're, if you're, uh, if, if you're assumed or uh, made guilty of adultery, you could be put to death. That was the punishment for adultery, and so this certificate was her means of survival, of dignity, of protection and provision. That's what the the marriage unit in that day gave her those things, protection and provision. And so the certificate could allow her to begin a a new life with dignity. So that was God's heart in doing this. And then we see in verse 11, though back to our text in Mark, but Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever divorces her husband and marries another commits adultery. Well, that doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of room for divorce, Jesus. So again, there's the tension point. And this is where a lot of scholars and a lot of Bible-believing Christians begin to diverge on their paths of interpretation. But a lot of it revolves around this exception clause that's found in Matthew 5 and, and Matthew 19, which is that exact same story that we're reading here in Mark. Matthew 19, 9 says this, And I say to you, Jesus talking, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. So in Matthew, Jesus, or Matthew records Jesus' words as using this exception clause. So the question is well, why does Mark not use it? I think the plainest understanding to that is that Mark is speaking in generalities and this exception would have been assumed to his audience. He did not feel it necessary to bring in this exception. That everybody would have understood this exception at that time. But Matthew, however, did feel the need to bring it in. And so, don't have time to chase down all the arguments for that. We, we will have uh, resources if you like to dig into this further. Love to share that with you. But the sexual immorality clause is there. We do have to deal with it. Why does Jesus bring sexual immorality up? I think the reason is because sexual immorality, when that happens inside of the marriage bond, it is uniquely and particularly destroying to the marriage union. It destroys trust, which is so central to that unit. It's massively destroying, right, to the one flesh union that we've already talked about. This is why Paul says in, in Corinthians, he's talking about the exact same thing to confirm this. He's saying, don't you know, don't, hey, don't, don't be going to the temple and, and, and being with prostitutes there, because don't you know that when you do, you become one with them? There's a, there's a one-flesh union that's taking place mysteriously. And what happens when you go outside of the marriage union for sexual or otherwise satisfaction? Pain and destruction is unleashed. So much harm. I mean, hardly all commands are incredibly destructive when we don't obey them, but how much pain could we testify In this room even. Because people, we, others, have not obeyed God's design here. Because of sexual immorality. Inside that unit, to the children, the ramifications, on and on it goes. Adultery is what Jesus seems to say is a biblical ground for a a divorce. We also see there's something else we see in the New Testament, Paul. Paul's addressing in 1 Corinthians another topic that Jesus was was simply not the focus of Jesus. Jesus' goal here, right, was not to dissect every possible reason for divorce. That's not his goal. He's upholding marriage. This is hard, but he's also speaking to a primarily uh, Jewish audience, to his disciples, to these Pharisees. And so Paul's addressing a very different context with, with issues that were not happening in Jesus' day, and that issue was this. Well, what happens when two unbelievers who are married, what happens with one, when one of those unbelievers gets saved? And now you've got a significant problem inside of this marriage unit. What should you do? He's, answer, he's answering that question. And he says, if at all possible, you should stay in the marriage. Stay there, figure it out, work hard together to stay in the marriage. But, 1 Corinthians 7, 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So, not enslaved here, people argue about what that means. I think just the simple, plain reading is this person is no longer enslaved to this marriage union. They're not, they're not enslaved to that union, and they're not enslaved to this person any longer. Paul says, have your freedom. Be free. Have a biblical ground for divorce and remarriage at this point. And while adultery and abandonment of an unbeliever are the two traditional ways that most Protesters, Protestants have viewed divorce and biblical grounds for it, I was really helped this week by Wayne Grudem. He's done some recent research on 1 Corinthians 7.15. And such cases here, it's very interesting, such cases is plural, and it is not, and it is not isolated only to more cases of abandonment of an unbeliever. It would, it would seem that such cases, based upon text evidence and otherwise in this culture, that such cases can re- refer not to more cases of abandonment, but to more cases that are this catastrophic in their nature and destroying trust in that marriage unit. This gets very complex, but it does seem to open up possible biblical grounds for divorce based upon other significant catastrophic behavior. And one way that people usually get around these sort of things is they just say, well, if somebody's doing this to their spouse, then they're not a Christian. And so then we go down the path of church discipline, calling somebody to repentance. But these matters, you know, it leaves, it leaves open things like, like, if you're wondering what's in my head right now, it's things like significant abuse. Or child abuse. Or significant addiction that is wrecking everyone's life. God is not celebrating you being stuck in a marriage like that. That's what, the, that's what the holistic nature of the Bible would represent to us. I don't want to get lost in these arguments here. And that does not make God thrilled. That's why he says, it's interesting, he says that you're not enslaved. And so I want to tread lightly here because it is very difficult grounds. And these situations, all of these situations, were of intense pastoral care, and the support and the guidance of the church community. We don't do this on our own. And nobody's getting divorced flippantly. Not here and shouldn't anywhere. But we pray and we fight and we seek God's counsel and we seek the counsel from godly people. At the very least, I just want to say that if you are in danger in your marriage, At the very least, you separate immediately. You don't stay in that thing. Regardless of what happens in divorce land, you separate. Don't put yourself or your children in harm's way in that way. Separate and seek pastoral care. To go any further, we don't have time for it, but we we also have the potential to lose the point of the message. The point is not, how can we be divorced? so not the point of this message. But it's worth talking about because it is an issue that affects us. The point is marriage. What does God desire for marriage? And so while he may allow for divorce, it's a concession because of how sinful we are. Because how much pain we unleash on each other through this. Is driven by compassion. He's like, no, this is not in accordance with my holiness and how I design it, but I so care for people that are being slaughtered by this sin, I'll make a concession. And so, I does have those concessions, hear this reconciliation and restoration is always the goal, it's always the priority, it's always the, what should be the primary focus. How do we reconcile? How do we fight for this marriage? How do we pursue a marriage that glorifies God in its original intent? How do we do that? That is our focus. We're aiming always at reconciliation and restoration. But then that also begs the question well, how in the world do sinners do that? How do we do that? Marriage is difficult, it's challenging. Next, we'll see the third point of this sermon. This is how we fight with the gospel. We see God's redemptive purpose in marriage. Throughout the Old Testament, God refers to himself as husband to his people. In Isaiah, I am your creator, God. I am your husband. I am the one that redeemed you out of slavery to Israel. You are, I mean, slavery to Egypt. You are mine. I am your husband. All along. All along I've been your husband. And then the prophets step in here and they use, they use adultery language to talk about sin. They use this re- highly relational and intimate marriage language to talk about sin. We see uh, there's many, many examples, but Jeremiah three twenty 20, Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord you've gone away from me god says so about the old testament and it doesn't change when we get to the new testament james 4:4 4, 4, you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god you adulterous people And some of the prophets and some of the language is incredibly, incredibly graphic. I was uncomfortable even thinking about some of the things I could say quoting Scripture this morning. It's incredibly graphic. Giving ourselves to other lovers. That's sin, the Bible calls it. And Tim Keller comments on this. He says, God, listen, God isn't using this language to shock, but to teach. There is an attraction going on at the spiritual level that's every bit as powerful as the sexual attraction at the physical level. And that's our condition today. Every single one of us. God who has done nothing but create us and love us and pursue us We've run away from him. We have chosen other lovers. We've gone after things in this world. We've said no to his lordship, no to his love. And we've given ourselves in spiritual adultery to other gods, other idols. And where has that left us? Where's that left you? I know where it's left me, myself, broken and empty and ashamed and filthy, defiled. That's what the fruit of leaving our relationship with God brings. It's the fruit of it. You learned the hard way that his instructions are good. None of us choose his instructions. We've all gone. We've all left and turned aside. So, what's our husband going to do? What's our holy husband gonna do? I mean, adultery is punishable by death. That might be what we expect to happen. We certainly can't go back to him. He could kill us. We deserve to die. What's our husband going to do? We might expect him to do that. But in the gospel, we see that's not what he does. He's still pursuing us. He hasn't stopped pursuing us. The farther we run from him, the faster he runs and the farther he runs after us. He keeps pursuing. He keeps forgiving. He keeps chasing us down. And we're saying no and we're trying to wiggle out of things and run away from him. And he will not have it. He keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. He's resolved to come after us. That resolve climaxes in the person of Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior. Because we never turn. We never do turn. And so finally in Jesus, he's saying, I'm coming. And I will win her back. I will win you back. Jesus as the groom comes for the bride. And how does he do it? He does it through service. We saw that last week. Service unto death. She deserves death. I'll take her death. That's what God does for us. I'll take it. I'll take it to a cross. Why? Because I love her so much. That's why I'll go. Because I love you so much. Jesus says, I'll go to death for you. And that blood cleanses us. Cleanses us, forgives us, washes us, freshly clean. our innocence is back. We are made righteous through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Reconciled back to Jesus, to the Father. This is the most beautiful love story there ever is, ever was. And it's a true story. It is the true story of the entire world. Jesus is after his bride, and we are enjoying his love now, and we're only setting our eyes to the day when it gets even more climactic. We see this in Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. This is the end time when our age, the curtain on this age, gets pulled back. This is what is heard. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. That's where we're headed, church. To stand before our husband, unashamed, radiant in glory and in righteousness, not because of anything we've done, but because of his transforming, redeeming, restoring love did that to us. What a love. What passionate, intimate, driven, covenantal love our God has for us. This is breathtaking. It doesn't get better than this type of love. How do we fight for marriage? How do we fight in our marriages? We behold Jesus. We behold our husband. We behold Christ in the gospel. We rest in his great love for us. We rejoice in being married to him forever and ever and ever. We rejoice in that. That's how we fight. And when you, get, when you get hold of that, when you're feasting on that, and this is how much your God loves you, when you realize that there's nothing you can do to make him love you less and nothing you can do to make him love you more, I believe that's a Philip Yancey quote. When you get that, you are free. You are free to rejoice now and forever, and you are free to serve. And you are free to be in your marriage when you're feasting on that, I mean, how petty are our arguments that we have? How trivial are the things that ruffle our feathers? That should be incredibly convicting. We allow what to bend us out of shape. When God has done this for us, we fight Here, Paul connects all these dots in Ephesians 5. It's a little lengthy, but I want you to see it. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. And marriage is empowered by the gospel. And marriage is not ultimate. The gospel is. Jesus is. That is incredible news for all of us today. Happily married, frustratedly married, struggling for the widowed, for those that are divorced, for the single person among us. This is great news. Marriage is not ultimate. Jesus is. Marriage to Christ is. That is where we find our ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. And that's what marriage is supposed to point us to. Our ultimate hope and our joy is found in our God this morning who has entered into covenantal love, who will never leave us and never forsake us. May we as the church stand for marriage, because as we stand for marriage, we stand for the greatest news in the whole world, the gospel, and for the greatest savior and the lover of our souls, our God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son this morning who has loved us as filthy as we are. You have loved us and sanctified us to where we are truly now lovable. You've made us beautiful in your eyes. We thank you for the redeeming, restoring work that you have done through your son on our behalf we celebrate you, Lord Jesus, for our, to be our eternal husband. Help us now, God, to be empowered. To be empowered in the gospel. To easily and quickly forgive. To cover offenses. To serve our spouses. God, may we carry the fragrance and the joy of Christ into the marriage unit. God, may we do this as we even give witness out into the world and to ourselves of the gospel message. Receive all the glory from it, Lord. We thank you in your name we pray. Amen.